It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 3814567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, September 29th, 2016. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father Greg Gwynn is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, good to be with you. Good tonight. to be with you. And glad you're on the other end of the line tonight. We look forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. And if you're watching us live tonight, sign in to the bottom of your video window in the chat room. We look forward to your comments there on the program tonight. Got a new driver behind the board tonight, and so far, so good. James Mayberry is here. James, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad you're here. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you as well as the program goes along. Yeah, you don't get to just push buttons, Jim. Well, you have to talk, yeah, too. Yeah, well, maybe when the white knuckles go away here a little bit here, he can, uh, <laughs> he can think to talk. But uh, we'll look forward to for some comments from James. Uh, looking forward to an interesting discussion tonight and a port one, Dad. Yeah, I've, uh, you came up with this topic, and I thought it was a really good one. Uh, there was a principle in the Old Testament about moving landmarks. In fact, in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 19, verse 14, it says, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. And so, you know, knowing the proper boundaries was really important. And, of course, they were divvying up a literal physical inheritance uh, among the various families of the of the children of Israel. And once that inheritance was assigned, then it was important that you don't move the landmarks. You don't move. We'd probably say something more like, "Don't move the property boundary lines." Yeah, yeah. Don't don't. If you got a, if you got a post there that represents the corner of my property and the, versus the corner of yours, don't don't cheat me. Don't move it over. Keep observe the landmarks. Proverbs twenty two and verse twenty eight says, "Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set." So in the Old Testament, they were talking about literal, physical landmarks. We want it, but we want to take that that notion and make a spiritual application of it in our lesson tonight, because Jacob, what's happening is some really significant moral landmarks are being moved in our eroded. Yeah. Yes, and uh, you know, my fear is that um, as time goes on, younger generations will begin to assume that take some things for granted and as a given well there's nothing wrong with that because the society accepts it and endorses it so much it's always been that way yeah isn't that isn't it hasn't it always been that way yeah you know i've used as an illustration a lot of times uh instrumental music right most everybody in this day and time would assume that churches all churches all denominations have always used instrumental music right but there's a really interesting quote, and we've used it on the virtual Bible study before, uh, in a book titled The History of the Baptist Churches in the Lower Mississippi Valley. Well, Baptist churches in the Lower Mississippi Valley, we're talking about, that has to be 200 years or less, right? That history is no more than 200 years old. Right. There weren't any Baptist churches in the Lower Mississippi Valley more than 200 years ago. Well, 
in that book, it, it specifies that one of the big controversies was the introduction of instrumental music. Right. If you talk to Baptists today, they would argue, well, we've always had instrumental music. Are you yeah. crazy? Of course we've always had them. No way that, that we ever didn't have instrumental music. They don't know their own history, and they don't know that that landmark in their denomination was moved. And now it's completely and ultimately accepted in Baptist churches to use instrumental music. But less than 200 years ago, it was a big fight in Baptist churches. Yeah, right. And and the, the sad part about that is now if you say those kind of things are unauthorized, you're the weirdo. You're yeah. the extremist. Where did you get such a crazy idea about instrumental music, about some of the other things we're going to talk about tonight? Because things have shifted away. Yeah. Uh, and and that's the the thing that we're, we're really trying to highlight in our discussion tonight is that if we don't hold the line and if we don't maintain those moral landmarks that God has put forth in his word, as you said, Jacob, in another generation or two, everyone will just assume it was, it's always been that way. All right. 877-381-4567. You asked some specifics earlier today, and we'll take uh, your thoughts on any of those kind of shifts uh, during the program tonight, uh, but some specifics that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Earlier today to our update list, we sent out uh, a message telling about our topic for discussion tonight and asking for feedback. And here was the questions we sent out. Get on our update list if you're not by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Just say, put me on the list, and we will. So we asked, number one, comment on how religious people in our time do not even question anymore things like marriage, divorce, remarriage, the role of women, homosexuality, consumption of alcohol, and modesty. Those were just some suggestions to get our conversation rolling. Yeah. And then we said, number two, list other areas where you see dramatic shifts in how even religious people view moral issues. Yeah. And the things we mentioned in your list there are things that have occurred in our lifetimes. We'll talk about that yeah. tonight. We've got yeah. some facts to show that. But these are not like things that happened 1,500 years ago. These happened within the last... 50, 75 years. Yeah. These things have changed so drastically that almost they're almost universally accepted now. Yeah. And uh, and it's scary. I thought uh, our friend Kent in North Georgia wrote and just sort of gave a general uh, analysis of this shift in philosophy or theology, I guess is a better way to put it. I thought he really nailed it. He said, modern-day religious people are willing to accept unscriptural divorce and remarriage. Leadership roles for women in local churches, homosexuality, recreational consumption of alcohol, in addition to lack of modest actions and clothing. That's the, the one he's just saying in all of those things that we mentioned, he says this is due to the problem of the elevation of subjective thinking over objective truth. The truth of God is objective, knowable, and ascertainable. John 8, verse 32, Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The, the truth, truth, singular. The truth shall make yeah. you free. He says, we must reason from it, from the truth, uh, correctly drawing proper conclusions. Only then can one demonstrate a proper respect for the authority of scriptures. He references 1 uh, Thessalonians 5.21, Colossians 3.17, Second John 9. When one elevates how one feels about a given situation rather than seeking the objective truth regarding such problems and making the correct applications, Problems will definitely follow. And I thought that was just a good way of, of viewing what we're talking about here. So why have people changed on a lot of these issues? Well, it's because of how they feel. God's word never, God's word hasn't changed. The, the newest parts of the Bible, and of course the parts that we live under, the New Testament law of Jesus Christ, are approximately 2,000 years old. 
And it hadn't changed in 2,000 years. Right. What's changing? It's not the objective truth of the Scripture. It's people's subjective feelings about things. Subjective feelings. And he references 1 Thessalonians 5:21. Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. We've got to be testing. So it's and there's got to be a standard other than what I feel about it. Yeah. And that standard is told in as he mentioned John Second uh, John verse nine, whosoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So people are going based on their feelings. I just don't see anything wrong with it. Seems okay to me. And rather than the, the this objective standard of God's word. But they're also using another standard I think that we'll see as we go along in our uh discussion tonight, and that is the standard of our society. Yeah. What, is, what do everybody else feel about that? Yeah. Let's, let's put, our, the trend? put our finger to the wind and see what the, what the society says about it. But I, in, in, back to the idea of subjective feelings, I, I don't know how many times that I've been in discussion with people and really, really pressing from the scriptures. You know, here's book, chapter, and verse. And people say, I don't care what that says. I just know how I feel. I just can't see how that could possibly be I wrong. I can't understand why God would not uh, approve of well, that. Well, why would that be wrong? And so even when there's black and white print on the page and they read it. Uh, I, I, I remember one time uh, studying with a couple of young men. <laughs> and they had to ultimately say, well, that's what it says, but that's not what it means. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're just going to reject the truth, you're just going to reject it. But uh, I think Kent did a good job there of, of put, laying down a root cause for all the problems we're discussing in our program And not tonight. to jump the gun on the discussion, but this is especially apparent in the uh, homosexual movement to accept that lifestyle. You know, the new, the new motto now is it doesn't matter who you love. The presidents are using The presidential candidates are using it. Well, we want everybody, regardless of your nationality, your gender. Who you love? Well, that is a very vanilla saying. That sounds good, doesn't it? That's yeah. very. I mean, emotionally, love is a good. That's thing. a good thing, right? I should be able. To, yeah. So it must be okay. Yeah. That's just the way it's working. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's start out, and we're we're open to your suggestions. Get get in the chat room, especially, and send us some ideas of where you see some big movement uh, in the in the thinking of religious people. But let's start out with one. Uh, that is not very politically correct in our day and time, but it, it, it really illustrates this shift of this movement. Let's talk about the one we mentioned, divorce, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, Jacob. Sometimes we even abbreviate that MDR, marriage, divorce, yep. remarriage. There's been some big movement on that, and you've got some information from our friend Pat Donahue uh, that's documented some of that shift. Yeah, he's got some great information put together, but just in own personal experiences, 50 years ago, it was relatively rare. 50 years ago, it would have it would have been a rare thing to find divorced people in a in a in a local congregation. And there were some, so much, there were some, but not a lot. And even scandalous in society to some extent. And people, and there was a sort of a taboo about it. And even people who were divorced uh, and, and were innocent parties in a divorce felt a shame yeah. as, associated with the fact that they had been in a divorce. And uh, back to the political world, how long ago has it been? Was it Ronald Reagan, the first divorced president? Right. And before that, it would you have could, been unheard it, of. It couldn't, some, uh, couldn't possibly oh, have been elected. For him, he's been divorced. Couldn't possibly have been elected with a divorce in their history. And somebody said that today. You think, what kind of, what, where'd you come from? Yeah, are you from Mars or That's, something? What are you, weirdo? You think yeah, it's yeah. unusual that someone would be divorced or yeah. not acceptable? Yeah. But yet, uh, today, so many people are accepting it, and... I would say almost, I don't know, a majority of denominations are accepting of it today. 
Uh, Pat put together. Track, track this for us, Jacob. Yeah. For, yeah, this is we're using the Methodist Church here as an illustration. Of what's but we're happened. Not, we're, we're not trying to be overly harsh on the Methodists because a whole bunch of other people are in the same boat. But they have documented this through their creed books. All right. Yes. And so here's what's happened in the Methodist Church. We need to remember and remind ourselves of Matthew 19.9. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Fairly straightforward. Uh, you Hard know, I, I, a lot of people act like the, the the marriage, divorce, and remarriage question is so hard to understand that they just kind of throw their hands up that it's impossible to to get a a, a definite answer. I'm going to tell you, I think you have to have help to misunderstand Matthew 19 verse 9. Yeah. So the, the standards there: divorce is unacceptable except for the one cause of fornication and remarriage. Remarriage after one of those divorces that's not for fornication would be. Adultery. That's what Matthew 19, verse 9 says. Well, the Methodist in 1896, what, okay. about 120 years ago? Okay, about 120 years ago. Exactly 120 years ago. Yep. They had it right in their creed book, which, again, we might reiterate, if your creed book says exactly what the Bible says, there's no need for your creed book. And if it says something different, then you ought to get rid of it anyways. But Methodist in 1896 in their creed book said, No divorce except for adultery shall be regarded by the church as lawful, and no minister shall solemnize marriage in any case where there is a divorced wife or husband living. But this rule shall not be applied to the innocent party to a divorce for the cause of adultery, nor to divorced parties seeking to be reunited in marriage. Reunited in marriage, yeah. Reunited. yeah. So that's from the Doctrines and Discipline of the Methodist Episcopal Church. 1896. That's a almost dead-on restatement very, of Matthew 19.9. Sounds very, real close to Matthew 19.9, doesn't it? Okay, so they got it. They keep it up. Here's here's from the Creed book in 1914. So what, we, we move in... Uh, 18 years down, closer, and they're still on the mark. The ministers of our church shall be prohibited from solemnizing the rights of matrimony between divorced persons, except in the case of innocent parties who have been divorced for the one scriptural cause. They even talk about the one scriptural cause. Sounds exactly like what we would say in Matthew 19, 19. Now, they start to give a little bit. In 1940, here's what they say in their creed book. No minister shall solemnize the marriage of a divorced person whose wife or husband is living and unmarried, but this rule shall not apply to the innocent person when it is clearly established by competent testimony the true cause for divorce was adultery. Sounds good so far, but notice what they add. Or other vicious conditions which through mental or physical cruelty or physical peril invalidated the marriage vow, nor to the divorced person seeking to be reunited in marriage. So, so they added something there. Yeah. They, they said it again, but they said, but if there's another cause, the vicious conditions, in other words, uh, uh, men, they, they specify mental, physical cruelty, physical peril. Yeah. So, you know, by 1940, the Methodist Church was saying, for instance, if there was a uh, a wife whose husband had been abusive to her, maybe she could get a divorce and remarry. Yeah. They've they've compromised a little bit. Yeah. They've they've moved a little bit off of that landmark. What we're saying is that there was a, there's an established landmark in the scriptures. Matthew 19:9 states it. They knew it. But now they've started to move away from that landmark. And once you move away, that uh, departure usually picks up speed. Here they are in 1960, 20 years later. In view of the seriousness with which the scriptures in the church regard divorce, a minister may solemnize the marriage of a divorced person only when he has satisfied himself 
by careful counseling that A, the divorced person is sufficiently aware of the factors leading to the failure of the previous marriage, and B, the divorced person is sincerely preparing to make the proposed marriage truly Christian, and C, sufficient time has elapsed for adequate preparation and counseling. So it doesn't matter now why you got a divorce. And they completely left it by 1960. Now they're completely off the off the off the reservation. Yeah, the landmark is not in sight anymore. No. no. you just got to know why you're first, you got to know what caused the failure of your yeah, first yeah. marriage you got to be really preparing for your second marriage and there has to be sufficient time although that's not specified yeah. there got to be some time that has lapsed since the divorce took place that's none of that's in the bible no i, I suppose understanding why your marriage failed would be you know a biblical principle yeah. you know if if i've suffered a divorce i should should have some understanding of what led to it but that's just you know they have they have completely moved away from the landmark. Nineteen sixty. That's uh, fifty six years ago. From, from in fifty six years they went from no divorce except for cause no, of fornication. No, no that no sixty four years they did. Yeah, yeah, sixty four yeah. years they went. From, they moved. They, they went from no divorce except for fornication to basically anybody can get remarried. Yeah. So Give us one again, more. within the lifetime of mo- many people listening tonight. Uh, they've gone uh, from 1940, uh, where they're starting to give a little bit, to now in 1960. Anything goes, just as long as you know why you got the divorce and you don't want to do it again. Then hey, come get married again. All right. So, um, and then in 1984, this is how far they've gone. Where marriage partners, even after thoughtful consideration and counsel, are estranged beyond reconciliation, we recognize divorce as a regrettable, but as regrettable, but recognize the right of the divorced persons to remarry. We express our deep concern for the care and nurture of the children of divorced and or remarried persons. We encourage that either or both of the divorced parents be considered for custody of the minor children of the marriage. We encourage an active, accepting, and enabling commitment of the church and our society to minister to the members of divorced families. So just anything. I mean, yeah. It's just you can't help okay. it. Again, we don't want to, we don't want to be any harder on the Methodists than we are on anybody else because almost all denominations would be right in that same vote uh, with the Methodists in justifying all divorce and remarriage cases, uh, no restriction. They went in less than a hundred years. They went completely away from any recognizable uh, landmark, biblical landmark on that question. And that's what we're talking about. Now, if, if, if you were to ask a person in a Methodist church today, do you think that there should be any restriction on divorce or remarriage? You think that the, you think that the Bible places any restriction on divorce or remarriage? They'd say, "What? Who ever heard of that? Whoever? I never heard of such a thing. That's that's some kind of ultra conservative, fanatical. You you you're some kind of religious right winger. Who you're would ever su- who would ever suggest such a thing? And their own church or their own denomination would have." taken that stand less than 100 years ago. They're not the only denomination again. It's happened throughout uh, the religious world today. The landmark has been moved, but we need to make sure we know where it is by God's word and that we're prepared to teach and stand on that, and we're teaching that to our children. Uh, We're going to get a break, and when we get back, we want to hear your thoughts, your comments. Uh, Send them in the chat room tonight. Give us a call or send us an email. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Don't go anywhere. You might miss something. 
The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Hi, I'm Lane Crawford, a member of the College View Church of Christ. If you've never visited with the College View Church of Christ, you may be wondering what our worship services are like. One thing we have at every worship service is music. We believe God has commanded that music be a part of our worship. But something you may notice about our worship is that the music we have in our worship is different than the music used by many in the religious world today. The music we worship God with is strictly vocal. We don't believe God has commanded us to worship Him with instrumental music. Therefore, since we want God to approve of the worship we offer Him, we only worship in the way that He has specified. In Colossians 3.16, God instructs, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Instructions like this in which only vocal music is commanded are the only instructions we can find in the New Testament. Since God didn't tell us that he wanted us to worship him with instrumental music, how can we be sure that he wants that kind of worship? We do know that if we worship God like he prescribed with vocal music, that he'll be happy with that kind of worship. We hope you'll make plans to visit with the College View Church of Christ to learn more about what our worship is like. We'd love to have you join us in worship of our Creator this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Swallowing angry words before you say them is better than having to eat them afterwards. People may doubt what you say, but they will always believe what you do. Kindness is a language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Life affords no greater responsibility, no greater privilege than the raising of the next generation. People who fly into rage always make a bad landing. Man. Wish I'd said that. See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. And we're back on the program tonight. So we talk about uh, landmarks that our society and, sadly, the re- religious world is moving. And we need to make sure that we know where those landmarks should be based upon God's Word. We've talked about the fact that divorce and remarriage has been severely eroded, not by just by our society, but by the religious world at large. Yeah, exactly and, right. Uh, you know, and just, we just documented how the Methodist Church... For those of you who may just be joining us, we just documented how the Methodist Church moved away from, in 1896, the Creed book clearly, just nearly echoed Matthew 19.9, and in a little over 50, a little over 60 years, they had gotten to a point where they, they would allow anything and everything, and now they do allow anything and everything when it comes to divorce and remarriage. Again, We've got to teach what the Bible teaches on divorce and remarriage. No divorce except for the one cause of fornication. Only the innocent party can remarry. No put-away person is allowed to remarry with biblical authority. That's what the Word of God says. There's just no doubt about it. It's very clear. And although most people today, even most religious people today, do not acknowledge what the Bible teaches on that, we've got to hold that landmark. The idea... Of our, of our lesson tonight and what we're discussing is God set some moral landmarks in His Word and we are not at liberty to just move those wherever we want. We've got to stick to the, to the ancient landmarks. And, uh, and our society was holding to those, uh, sadly not too long ago in many of the cases we're looking at and they have moved and we need to make sure that we're not using our subjective feelings and we're not using the shifting standards of the world to establish what is right or wrong? In the chat room, guest 514 and guest 6067 have left uh, two good questions and comments. Uh, we'll get those as we get to that uh, subject, uh, that topic in our discussion tonight. And we want your comments as well. Sign in the chat room if you're not signed in there already. But sadly, our society is moving so fastly, fast away from the, the, the standards of God's word, it seems. And we need to make sure that we're firm on these landmarks. Now, go ahead. Uh, oh, go ahead. You had no thought. No, go ahead. Well, I thought we would just segue that to uh, what is a, 
seems to be a related change in people's thinking. And most people might be shocked to think that there's a relationship between marriage, divorce, and remarriage and homosexuality. But again, and thanks again to our friend Pat Donahue in Alabama who, who's, who has done some good research on this subject, people are using this shift of, of the landmarks concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage to now justify the acceptance of homosexual marriage. Yeah. In other words, if you can allow people to marry in violation of Matthew 19.9, why can't you allow them to marry in violation of Romans 1 that condemns homosexuality? Yeah. And we're seeing some people doing that. Now, again, this landmark has moved in recent enough history that most of our listeners will realize that the acceptance of homosexuality in general, and especially homosexual marriage, is a, a, a relatively new phenomenon within the last decade, uh, definitely within the last two decades, that religious people have been accepting of of this lifestyle, and especially homosexual marriages within the last few years. Yeah. But it has been so widely accepted that just a few years down the road, the younger generations will assume, well, it's always been this way. 20 years from now, if someone says, you know, that, that homosexual marriage thing is wrong, people say, what? Are you kidding me? I never, well, heard, I never heard anybody Crazy say that. Crazy nut. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here's what the United Methodist Church says. Uh, they said leadership voted to submit a legislative proposal that removes prohibitive, prohibitive language from the United Methodist Book of Discipline concerning homosexuality. The proposal would allow United Methodist pastors to perform same-sex marriages in United Methodist churches. This proposal does not consider homosexuality incompatible with Christian teachings, even though Methodists have historically recognized the practice as sinful. So now they're saying, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with homosexual marriage. We're voting that you should allow it in Methodist churches. Now, just 120 years ago, they were teaching God's truths on divorce and remarriage. And now, 120 years down the road, they're saying, well, you know, that doesn't matter. And in fact, the clear teachings against homosexuality and the definition of marriage in the Bible, those don't matter either. You can be of the same sex and married, and that's compatible with what now, Christianity is. Now, notice, and, and somebody said, well, those are not related, are they? Well, they really are. No, notice, here's, here's a quote from a preacher named Ken Wilson. He said, I have proposed a path for these pastors that allows them to embrace people who are gay, lesbian, and transgender, and to accept them fully, welcome, and wanted into the company of Jesus. I wrote a letter to my congregation when I realized my views had changed and I needed to communicate the intense theological, biblical, pastoral, and spiritual process that I had been through to get to this new place. I don't think he's done any theology or, or biblical scriptural study. I think this is all about his feelings. And he says so. Notice this. It began, this is how he got to this new place, he says. It began with a burr beneath the saddle of my conscience. Oh, that's feelings, right? Yeah. He says, why was I willing to let so many divorced and remarried couples know that they are welcome and wanted while refusing that same welcome to gay and lesbian couples? How could I say to the remarried couples whose second marriage was clearly condemned by the plain meaning of Scripture, how could I say to them, you're welcome and wanted, while saying to the two mothers raising an adopted child together, I love you, but I hate your sin? Yeah. Unbelievable. Now, you see what he said? He's, he's, he has actually admitted 
the shift that allows unscripturally divorced people to be married and accepted in the in that denomination forces him and it really does he's consistent in, in matters of consistency he is forced if he's going to accept those unscriptural marriages between men and women who are divorced and not not authorized to remarry if he's going to accept those marriages he says how could i say to these this same sex couple i won't accept you I couldn't do it anymore. It was a it was a burr under my conscience. I was ig- we were ignoring what the scriptures taught on divorce and remarriage and saying that doesn't matter. So to be consistent, we've got to ignore what it says about homosexuality and same sex marriage. Exactly. Uh, it is amazing. I think that just that just tells the tale, don't you think? Yeah. Guess the seventy six seventy three says from the beginning it was not so. And it wasn't even even from a little over a hundred years ago in the Methodist Church it was not so. Yeah, uh, we're going to go way out west tonight uh, to Wyoming and welcome Monty uh, to the virtual Bible study. Monty, Monty, what are you doing in Wyoming? Are you there, Monty? Oh no, let's see, let's try there. How about there, Monty? Do we have Monty? Hello, Monty. Oh, we've lost him. I hope he'll be able to call back here shortly. Definitely not there. Not there. Okay, Monty, call back. Call back, Monty. Okay. Uh, And uh, so clear uh, that the landmarks are moving. Yeah, and so that uh, I I hope that, and we've taken almost half of our program to to highlight that example of this shift in in the moral landmarks of God's truth. People moving away from what the scriptures plainly say. Trying to justify it by how they feel and so forth. I, I just, I, I, again, I want to thank our friend Pat Donahue for putting that information together because it tells the tale. All right. Uh, guest 6067 in the chat room says, love is not automatically all right or pure. I think 6067 is referring to that uh, common s- phrase that we're hearing nowadays. It doesn't matter who you love. Uh, 6067 goes on and says, man's love is selfish, self-seeking. Only God's love is pure and righteous. Amnon loved Tamar to the point of sickness. After the rape, he hated her more than he loved her, referencing 2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, so excellent uh, comments there. Uh, guest 514 says, uh, Genesis 19, beginning verse 12, describes how God handles, and it's got to be, uh, they didn't specify, but I think it's how God handles homosexuality and what he thinks about this, oh, just added, and what he thinks about this issue. That uh, Genesis 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah and how God punished those cities for the sin of homosexuality. Hard to you know, get around that. Uh, we understand, we often point out on the verse of Bible study, we're not living under that Old Testament law of Moses. This predates the law, the, the Old Testament law of Moses in Genesis 19. So in, in the patriarchal age, God condemned homosexuality. Under Moses, God plainly condemned homosexuality. In the New Testament, we see homosexuality plainly specified as sinful and condemned. What has changed that makes so many religious people now say that it's okay? Yeah. What's changed? All right. James, uh, so far so good behind the board there. How about your thoughts on the topic tonight? Well, I have two thoughts on the topic. If Just like the, the minister said or the pastor said, if, if you've left a standard, you can't condemn at all. If we don't hold to all of God's commandment, we can't bind any of them. And that's he he admitted that in that statement. That's yeah. right. So, yeah. And a lot of other folks are coming to that conclusion on different subjects, and yeah. and they're using that. Well, we do. We've accepted this, so we've got to accept that. That's right. Once you once you deviate, the barn door is open. And then when you don't have a standard, you see in Judges what happens in in the Bible when they when they don't have a standard, but they don't follow God's law. 
they do what's right in their own eyes. Yeah. And then at the end of the book of Judges in chapters 19 to 21, you see what it culminates in, how evil the Benjamin Benjaminites were in, in dealing with the Levitical concubine yeah. at the end of that book. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that's, uh, the, the Old Testament is ripe with examples, and I think you've pointed out some good ones there, James. And that if we're not going to stick to what God's Word says, if if I let you, no, take it back. Let's put it this way: if you let me alter the truth or the application of the truth in any specific way then I can't complain when you want to alter it to suit your fancy Absolutely. either. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Okay, we need to get a break, and when we get back, we'll take your thoughts. Uh, give us a call, send us an email, sign in the chat room tonight. Uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this. Got a question about something you've heard on the virtual Bible study? Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. We'll be right back after this. This is Greg Gwen with this week's Bullet Point. In the news recently, a Tennessee man held up a bank at gunpoint. Nothing new there, but what he did afterwards was really odd. After the teller gave him the money, he went over and sat down in the lobby. The police, of course, came and arrested him. His explanation? He said he would rather be in jail than have to live with his wife. This man's actions confirm Solomon's observation. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop, or in this case in a jail cell, than with a brawling woman and in a wide house. Proverbs 25, verse 24. Sadly, many husbands and wives continue to live miserably in contentious relationships that manifest no love and offer no peace. Further, they keep on violating the clear and direct commands of God, and thus they fail to enjoy the blessings that God designed into the marriage relationship. The scriptures give clear instructions that, when obeyed, will bring marital success and true happiness. Consider, quote, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. That's from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. The book of Proverbs says in chapter 18, verse 22, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. But this promise is only true when both the husband and the wife observe God's wisdom in the marriage relationship. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, my name is Preston Jackson. I'm from Valdosta, Georgia, and I want to hear your comments. So if you have one, call 931-381-4567 or email your questions at questions at collegeview.com. Now that you've had your break, it's back to the program. We're back on the program tonight, thanking you for joining us. Reminding you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And while you're there, find out how to podcast a recent sermon that's been presented to the College of Church, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We welcome your comments at any time. Questions? At collegeview.com. As we talk about landmarks, how they've been moving and shifting in our society and sadly in the religious world today. Uh, and uh, some good comments in the chat room. Uh, guest 514 says, It seems like we're living in a politically correct society. If you're not accepting of everyone, then we're haters. And how can we be sons of God if we're hating on people? Yeah, that, and I think, that's, I think that states it very well. That's sort of the way people view it. If you speak out against anybody's conduct, then you're hating them. Yeah. You know. Uh, but, you know, 
the scriptures condemn conduct while expressing God's love for all mankind. You know, I think it may be a trite expression, but, you know, you hate the sin, you love the sinner. I think that's what God did. God wants all men to be saved, but he hates evil. And we're supposed to hate evil, too. Uh, guess 6067 uh, references Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which presents a, prevents a woman who is divorced from her first husband to remarry her second husband if she divorces her second husband, to the point of calling it an abomination. In other words, I think you read that wrong. Prevents a woman who is divorced from her first husband to remarry her first husband if she divorces her second husband. Well, our, our purpose in our study tonight is not to get really deeply into the divorce, the, the, all the ins and outs of the divorce and remarriage. We've talked about that before in the virtual Bible study. Uh, of course, understand that we're not under the, the law of Moses any longer. And so, uh, that wouldn't be a place to go to necessarily prove whether a person could remarry a former spouse. Uh, I would, I would instead refer you to 1 Corinthians 7. Beginning verse 10, unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. And the word depart there is the same word to put away or divorce. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. There Paul is instructing that divorced people actually be reconciled. And he certainly says don't compound the problem by marrying someone else because you're not authorized to do that. Okay. All right. But and again, our purpose is not to get deep into the into all the ins and outs of divorce and marriage. We're just using that as an example of how people have shifted away from the 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 single exception of Matthew nineteen nine. And sixty sixty seven, if you'd like to contact us, we welcome your comments at questions at college dot com if you'd like to discuss that with us further. I don't think we probably have addressed your point there uh, sufficiently, but uh, we'd like to have a discussion with you over email, 6067. Questions at collegeview.com. That goes for anyone who may be listening to the program tonight. Okay, we're going to go back and give it another try. We're going out to Wyoming tonight. And, uh, Monty, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, hey, that's Monty. Better. That's better. Good to hear your voice. Uh, way, way out there in the west in the Rocky Mountain country. Yeah, as I listened to the program tonight and I was looking on my email today about the subject we've got, when we think about people moving landmarks, it's because they're greedy or selfish. And, you know, there was a there was a landmark here for a corner boundary for a property, and someone wants to do away with it or move it so they can claim more land because they're selfish. Well, the problem we have with this idea today in a religious world is people have become selfish, and they don't want to – they're not interested in worshiping God anymore. They're really interested in satisfying their own desires and their own cravings, and they don't really care what God says. So they're doing away with his landmarks or his boundaries that he set in the scripture and establishing their own so they can have more than what God has allowed them. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it, Monty. Back when they had physical landmarks, if you were a, if you were a greedy person, if you were selfish and trying to get something that, that you shouldn't have, you would move your neighbor's landmark. So you'd try to falsely claim additional territory, but it would be a selfish motive. It's all about me. And uh, when people do that on doctrine... Yeah. And when people do that on doctrinal issues today, it's also selfishness. I think that's a good observation, Monty. You know, as we were discussing the marriage and divorce issue here in the program, they've gone, they don't want to stay inside the boundaries that God's established for what is a legitimate marriage relationship. And they're saying, well, I'm not satisfied with what I have. I want something more. I want something beyond what I've been allowed. So they want to do away with the landmark that God has established, the boundaries that God has established. And it's that way and everything else. As the emails we talked about, 
uh, had the idea of homosexuality and all these other things, you know, any issue you want to bring up. They're not satisfied with what God says, with the boundaries that God's established, and they want to move those boundaries to encompass what they want to do. I think you're right. I think you're right on, Monty. Um, you can hang on the line if you want to for a while there and listen some more and see if you got, you've got you always got good input to the things we're discussing. So if you've got time, stay on the line. Okay. All right. Um Let's move. Let's move to a couple of other uh, illustrations of this, Jacob. And uh, one of them is a, another one. Now, let's. We're just trying to make a point. Yeah. If you move the landmarks, if you move the moral landmarks that God has established, in time, no one will remember where the landmark originally was. Right. And they'll begin to think that it's always been this way. Divorce and remarriage and homosexuality, a couple of examples, but there's others. And another one that we that we suggested to discuss was the idea of the role of women. Yeah, and uh, we have seen uh, a almost unanimous acceptance of women in leading roles in churches today, uh, to the point that I think almost every denomination would accept uh, women in, in leadership roles. Yet, not many years ago, the teachings of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, for instance, were widely accepted and understood as uh, the guide and the, and the uh, principle that must be followed. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. That was clear enough. Not too many years ago, within the last hundred years or so, many or most denominations would have accepted that. Now, today, not so many. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 14, a pretty plain statement uh, at verse uh, 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches. It's not permitted to them to speak, but they're commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. Seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. You look back in history, not too far back, denomination like here's 1977, uh, a woman was first ordained as, to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church, 1977, less than 40 years ago. Um, uh, the Reformed Church in America in 1979 ordained uh, women, first women as uh, ministers in that church. Uh, we can go back even, I think, into the 90s. I think you've got some dates in the 90, uh, 1990s there for the uh, uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church, maybe? 1990 Anglican ch- Church in New Zealand, 1988 Episcopal Church, 1980 the Methodist Church. Those are all fairly recent. Yes. Uh, you know, but, but, but just think about that. We're, we're talking about some of these that are just a little over 30 years ago. If you were to talk to Methodists today... And say, you think it's okay to have women preachers? They say, well, sure. Well, do, well, do you know that in your... Now, actually, you remember, Jacob, we had a friend, Paul, out in Iowa who attended a Methodist church. And uh, when they first got a woman preacher, he was pretty upset about that, you yeah. know. Yeah. But, you know, he didn't leave the Methodist church. Right. And that's the problem. You know, you, if you see things that are wrong... And you don't, and you don't stand up for what's right, and you just even tacitly accept it as being well. That's just the way it is. Then that becomes the norm. Right. That just moved the landmark. Right. And that's what we've. That's what we're saying. We got to maintain those ancient landmarks. You know, a, a little quick searching before the program, Jacob. I think we found one of the first references to a woman preacher we could find was 1853. 
United Church of Christ. Of course, the United Church of Christ is a very liberal right. denomination. Uh, but even they, just a little over 150 years ago, was the first thing that, you know, the first in- indication they were going to move in that direction. Yeah, right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, within the last 150 years, uh, you know, you could, you'd be very rare to find someone in that position. Uh, one of the things that you said, Jacob, is that we've got to teach our kids these these landmarks because in, a, in another generation, nobody's going to know where they even were. But along that line, we got to prepare our kids to be willing to stand up against the ridicule they're going to receive when they hold right. these ancient landmarks, you know. Uh, it's already becoming so that people think that we're extremists and it's just going to get worse in in 20 years from now, 40 years from now, where will it be for our kids? All right. Guest 514 says, I recently moved to a new area and on the duty roster, women are listed as greeters. Is this okay by Bible standards? Well, I don't know for sure what, uh, they mean by you. You mean by greeters there? We have a similar practice here in which we, uh, we ask certain people to, Make it a special, uh, make a special effort to greet visitors on a certain Sunday. So we uh, we, we have, just ask some of our members to stand at the door and pass out bulletins and say hello to people as they maybe come direct the people to classes if they got questions about where they need to go, yeah. you know, what what the order of service yeah. is. Just answer questions. Uh, that's just a that's just an unofficial designation of, of that that possesses no authority whatsoever. I, I don't see a problem with it because there's, there's, there's no authority, there's no leadership or authority associated with that situation at all. And again, the command is, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And so I would not uh, see that that is violating that command uh, if our listener has a different... Years and years ago, I had someone ask about that, that we that we were saying, you know, let this man and wife stand at that door as people coming in and let let this woman or this man and wife or whatever stand at the other door and pass out bulletins as people come in and just make sure everybody understands that they're welcome as they're coming into the assembly. It's not in the assembly. And that person's uh, not doing anything that uh, we wouldn't uh, ask folks to do normally. Everyone, we want everyone to be friendly and welcome. And we're just asking somebody to make sure that the bulletins get passed out and make sure someone's standing at the yeah. door as people coming yeah. in. Yeah. But that's it's really not an official function, and there's no authority associated well, with it at all. And it wouldn't be no different than saying sister so so-and-so is going to be cleaning the building this week, or sister so-and-so is going to be preparing the communion. Yeah. Sister so-and-so is going to be welcoming people when they come in the door. Yeah. Uh, but if, if there's some different thoughts on that, we'd like to hear them in the chat room tonight. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Another question from Jared in the chat room is a good one. Quickly before our break, how would you argue with someone who said that 1 Corinthians 14.34 is only in the assembly and adult Bible class isn't the assembly of the church. First Corinthians uh, fourteen thirty four says, "Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law." Well, uh, real quickly, and again, it's not our purpose to to get off too deeply into into the specifics of these situations, but but we can here quickly comment. In 1 Corinthians, starting in the second half of chapter 11 and running clear through the 14th chapter, I believe Paul is describing an assembly where the church comes together to observe the Lord's Supper. If you start at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, he says in their case it was not to observe the Lord's Supper, but it ought to have been. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about their coming together to observe the Lord's Supper. That's the kind of assembly that Paul has under consideration all the way through 
chapter 12, 13, 14. He even reiterates it in chapter 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place. Mm-hmm. And so I think that all of that context over those chapters is talking about the assembly, the assembly of the saints when they come together to observe the Lord's Supper. And that's, and I think we have to take that context into consideration when he says in 1434, let your women keep silence in the churches. Now, but uh, we would uh, say that the principle of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, is that a woman is not to be teaching over a man, even in that situation. And, and that, I don't think, is limited to, to the assemblies. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll get a break, and uh, when we get back, we'll get your thoughts. We'll see if Monty's got a thought, see if James has got a thought. We'll keep. But our, uh, our concept tonight is don't move God's moral landmarks. When we get back, we want to talk about a couple more uh, moral issues, uh, the consumption of alcohol and uh, standards of modesty, both things that have shifted drastically within the last few years in the world and definitely among uh, those who claim to be Christians today. We'll get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We'll go to the top of the hour right after this. Wow, it isn't so hard to understand the Bible after all. There's more exciting study and discussion coming after these messages. This is Monty Overton, a member of the College View Church of Christ. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study. We appreciate your interest in the Bible. It is, after all, God's message to us. We thought you might be encouraged by a poem written by A.Z. Conrad entitled, The Bible Stands. It goes like this. Century follows century, there it stands. Empires rise and fall and are forgotten, there it stands. Dynasty succeeds dynasty, there it stands. Kings are crowned and uncrowned, there it stands. Emperors decree its extermination, there it stands. Atheists rail against it, there it stands. Agnostics smile cynically, there it stands. Profane, prayerless punsters caricature it, there it stands. Unbelief abandons it, there it stands. Higher critics deny its claimed inspiration. There it stands. The flames are kindled against it. There it stands. The tooth of time gnaws but makes no dent in it. There it stands. Infidels predict its abandonment. There it stands. Modernism tries to explain it away. There it stands. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. 11% of Americans think the Bible is just another book of teachings written by men containing stories and advice. 56% of Americans think the Bible has no errors. Among Americans who strongly agree that the Bible is totally accurate in all that it teaches, by age, 18 through 25-year-olds, 30 percent, 26 through 44-year-olds, 39 percent, 45 through 63-year-olds, 46 percent, 64 years old and older, 58 percent. That information is via Christianity Today. The Word of God says in 2 Timothy 3, beginning verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The virtual Bible study rolls along. We're back on the program, going to the top of the hour, talking about maintaining uh, the ancient landmarks that many in our society and in the religious world, sadly, are wanting to move. We're going to go back to the phone. Monty uh, in Wyoming. Monty, you had uh, some thoughts. Yeah, Jacob. Uh, a lot of times when churches start to drift away, they do it under the leadership of elders, and the elders make a decision that's actually a wrong decision leading the church away. And there's people that know and understand the truth, but they'll make the excuse for going along with it. Well, I don't agree with it, but the elders made this decision, so I'll go, you know, so that's the way it is. But we've got to understand we have a personal and individual responsibility to stand for the truth to maintain those ancient landmarks. So if the elders have made a wrong decision, 
we have to respect them as elders, but we also have to stand up for the truth and, and point it out and teach the truth. We can't just go along with it because the elders said so, because that's not any different than the denominational world going off into the things that they do and saying, well, because they're religious are here, their association or their convention or whatever says so. The principle is we have a, a, a individual moral responsibility to stand for the truth, no matter who makes the decision in error. I think you're right, Money. That, that that would be just another example of applica- uh, application of Acts 5.29. We ought to obey God rather than men. And if, even if the men are elders or leaders in the church and they're, and they're suggesting a compromise or a change, we ought to obey God rather than men. All right. When the apostle Peter had gone astray, Paul personally rebuked him. He didn't say, well, he's an apostle, and, you know, I don't agree, but I'll have to let it slide. No, he went and pointed out the error of his way to him, and he says he rebuked him and confronted him face-to-face in the matter. So that was an individual rebuking or correcting an individual, and we have that same responsibility. I think you're right, Monty. All right. Uh, great, great to hear from you out there in Wyoming. Yeah, and, and you are on vacation, so uh, we're going to let you get back to that. We don't work you any harder tonight. <laughs> Good to hear from you, Monty. Thank you, Monty. Goodbye. All right, uh, James, uh, you've got. Uh, you had said you had a thought during the break that we've uh, ignored. So, uh, James. Well, I think that's something that we've covered some during our discussion. But as society in general, you know, goes farther and farther away from God's word, it affects religious people and it affects family members, and that's when the emotion really put, gets put into play. And we start ignoring things that we would, used to not ignore at all. And so that's probably why Jesus reminds us in Matthew 10:37 that we have to have love for God even above love for family and love for his word and his, his standards and his landmarks. And we have to we can't compromise when it's even emotionally hard for us. Oh, I think that's that. an excellent point, James, because we've all known people who changed their position on divorce and remarriage because they had a child, maybe, who got into an unscriptural divorce situation. So they rethought their position. We've known people who rethought their position on drinking alcohol because they had children who got involved in drinking alcohol. Uh, uh, and, and like you so uh, correctly said, James, Jesus said, we, we've got to love him more than even our own families. And he suggested that that being loyal to him would drive a wedge or a, divide, a dividing point in even among family members sometimes. And we've got to be willing to accept that consequence if it means standing for the truth. All right. And one of those uh, those landmarks that has shifted and maybe shifted because of uh, family members is this area of, of modesty. Uh, certainly uh, one doesn't have to uh, think back very long in, in their personal history to know that the standards of modesty have shifted uh, extremely yeah. in our society today, and they're shifting in among those who claim to be Christians as well. The landmarks are moving. I think that's very. I think that's very evident, and is is societal. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Christians are prone to let society set their norms rather than letting God's word set their norms. And so, you know, if if miniskirts become fashionable, then Christians, they won't be at the cutting edge of that trend to move toward miniskirts, but their skirts will get shorter uh, because society is. Then when it goes to long skirts, like it did a few years ago, well, they'll go back, oh, that's good, long skirt. But if it's just following fashion trends and not because of devotion to the Lord, then that's not good. Uh, We've got to be willing to be different and not let society 
move us around morally on matters of modesty or anything else. And uh, we have to stick with the landmarks established in scriptures. Along those lines, guest 514 asks, do we have scriptures for modesty, for examples of what is modest and not? Well, we actually—we're well, so late into the program, we can't dive into that very deeply. But we've got—we got some programs in our archives. Jacob, maybe here would be a good place to direct our listener to That's a, right. archive yeah, programs. We've on got uh, over 500 programs yeah. uh, out there uh, in the archives, and uh, we've touched on it more than once, I'm sure. Now look, look in. Uh, go, go to the top tab there under Virtual Bible Study, and uh, the, it pulls down, and you'll see WMA, which stands for Windows Media Audio. Pull down that tab, and that's got all the audio of all the programs we've ever done. And then uh, on your computer, hit Control-F, and uh, and a little search bar will open up, uh, and just type in there, Modesty, and it'll take you right to the program. I know we've got a whole yep. program on Modesty. You might check Reviewing a Modesty Survey from May first, two 2014. Uh, we have a program on Modesty from April seventeenth, two 2008. And also in April 19th of 2007. So uh, three different uh, programs you could check out there on our website. May 1st, um, April 17th, 2008, and April 19th, 2007. And so in answer to the question, do we have scriptures for modesty, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, we, we, we can't go into all that tonight, but we have before. We will again, but check out the archives. All right. And uh, certainly the standards are shifting and the landmarks are moving. And then finally, we wanted to talk about the consumption of alcohol. That's one that's shifted drastically in our society. I mean, it's amazing how much more uh, prevalent alcohol seems to be coming, even in the last few years. Among in our, Christians. Among, among Christians, even among our society. Yeah. Uh, and, and, our, and Christians are following along. Yeah. And, and we again, we can't get too far into the to this scriptural argumentation although we've done that just within the last year Jacob less within less than a year we had four or five programs in a in a series on alcohol the use of alcohol go back again to the archives and review that but where are we going to be you know it wasn't that long ago when all religious people would have said we shouldn't consume alcohol now it's the 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 landmark is being moved, and people say, well, yeah, I think it's okay, you know, and 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 even some of our own brethren say, oh, I think we've got to rethink our position on that. Well, what, why do we have to rethink it? Were, were 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 we wrong? And if we were wrong, then we we should be endorsing alcohol and its consumption. But one of the things I was thinking about as, in, as leading up to the program is. If we can make the arguments that justify the use of alcohol from the scriptures, and some are trying to do that, some are trying to say that the landmark, we, we had the landmark, basically they're trying to say we had the landmark wrong, that God always allowed people to consume alcohol. Well, if we're going to say that, then are you willing to also say that same landmark that then justifies the use of marijuana? If not, where are you, how are you going to make your argument? Where would you make the differentiation? I, I spoke with a gentleman uh, not too long ago about that, discussed that question. He made the same point arguments against alcohol that I would make, but he was saying consumption of alcohol is wrong, but he was using the same principles that I would make against alcohol. He was using those to to say that marijuana is wrong. Well, you can't do that. They're going to stand or fall together. Yeah. In other words, if you're going to say alcohol is okay to be used at least in moderation, then you're going to have to say that moderate use of, of, of another intoxicant, altering sobriety. That's really the underlying argument is that we're, we, we, we're not supposed to, f- to 
forfeit our sobriety. And if you can forfeit it for alcohol, at least in some degree, then you can forfeit it also for marijuana in some degree. They stand or fall together. Yeah. And I'm not a prophet, but I'm sad to say I think they'll probably both fall together. I think uh, that it won't be long until Christians are uh, defending the use of recreational marijuana. I Just the way it. things are going. Yeah. I, and, I, and I hate to say that. Guest 6067 makes an excellent comment. We live in a strange time where our secular governing authorities call taxes on tobacco and alcohol sin taxes, but churches don't call it a sin. (laughs) Good point. Uh, The government calls it a sin, but uh, churches churches don't. And then uh, uh, 7271 says, Our country has ignored God's word, and just as examples in the Bible, it is never for our good. That's right. Whenever people ignored God's word, in, in the Old Testament, it always came back to, to cause them tremendous problems, and it's going to cause tremendous problems for us if we continue to ignore God's truth. All right. Uh, quickly, Kent in his email says, This may be somewhat of a different twist on our subject this evening, but still important. I note a developing trend regarding issues that may be morally right, however problematic, in that individuals elevate the secular over the spiritual. By that, I refer to giving a greater emphasis to acceptable recreational activities, that is, activities that are right within themselves over developing greater spiritual values, such as more Bible study, prayer, and putting spiritual priorities to a greater degree in our lives. This would include being better stewards in the work of the local church. Yeah, I I, I, I was thinking of an example of what Kent was saying there. You know, it wouldn't have been that many years ago where people would not have... uh, engaged in recreational pursuits on Sunday, for instance. Yeah. That was a day set aside for spiritual concern, uh, thoughts. In our concerns. society as in, a whole. In, in our yeah. society. And we've really moved away from that. Yeah. You know, and, and, that, and, and there's some judgment involved in that. I, I, I understand that. Yeah. But I think that's what he's saying. Is that it's not wrong. You know, having a ball game is not wrong. And actually having a ball game on Sunday afternoon is not wrong. Yeah. But... If we allow this trend to take us away from an emphasis on spiritual and more of an emphasis on on worldly things, then that's sort of moving a landmark. Uh, one of those landmarks was it would be very uh, very unusual for a business to be open on Sundays. Now they all are. Now they all are. Yeah. Now again, not, as Kent's mentioned, not necessarily anything wrong with a business being open on Sunday, but it's that shift yeah. away from the spiritual focus. Yeah. All right. And today, people, if, if things weren't open, people are like, what, what's going on here? Why in that store Some open? kind of state of national emergency. See, what's going on? Why yeah, are these places yeah, open? Yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, James, any closing thoughts before we go tonight? Uh, James, thank you for uh, helping us out tonight. Good job, James. Excellent Thanks. Job. I'm glad enjoyed having you here. Thank you. Uh, Dad, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Jacob. enjoyed the discussion. It is certainly uh, important. Uh, we need to make sure we're established on the principles of God's word, and we're not allowing our society or our subjective feelings to dictate right or wrong. And move those move moral those landmarks. landmarks. All right. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's word. Appreciate your comments tonight. If you joined us live, if you didn't and you got comments, we welcome them. Questions at collegeview.com anytime that you may be listening to the program, we'd like to hear from you. We hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. 
Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.